Bloomington-based author and therapist, Ian Wollen's most recent novel is a multi-generational saga. The story sweeps across the second half of the 20th century. It takes readers from Indianapolis to Moscow to an island off the coast of Maine. Uncle Anton's atomic bomb borrows more than a few pages out of the author's own life. Ian Wollen spoke with WFIU's Yael Cassander in April of this year. You wear two hats, at least. Do you think of yourself foremost as a writer or novelist or as a therapist? That's a good question. Both callings feed each other, and uh, I don't see them as you know, totally distinct. I once went to uh, a workshop with Amy Bloom, who's a really well-known novelist, a good writer, and also a, a longtime therapist. She talked about how... These two realms were totally distinct in her life, and she kept them completely separate. And I admire her for that and respect her for that, but I don't know how she does it. I'm constantly finding and experiencing interweaves. You know, that doesn't mean I take anybody's story. I can't take anybody's story, but but uh, I'm certainly often inspired and motivated by experiences that my clients have gone through. It sounds like you had a sort of an itinerant career there for a while. Yeah, you know, I bounced around a couple different lives, one really critical point, uh, I was very lucky to land a job as a script reader for Dustin Hoffman back in the early 80s. But getting the job involved taking a test, and it was a very tricky test. They gave me a novel and a script, and I had to you know, read them and write up a report and then write up a recommendation about would they be suitable to be made into a movie. It was a trick test because the novel was just a piece of schlock but the trick was that underneath it all there was actually a plot that was very interesting and was very suitable to a movie and they wanted to know if I could spot that Uh and thank my lucky stars you know I did and actually it ended up being a movie called Random Hearts Harrison Ford uh, was in it and then the script was the opposite. The script was uh, an extremely well-written script. It was a thriller, really fast-paced, well done. But there was something that w- just didn't make the leap onto the screen, that didn't gel off of the page. And they wanted to know if, you know, if I could spot that, although this thing read really well, it wasn't going to really make it as a movie. So that got me the job. And then w- how this how this really influenced my development as a writer was that was, I guess it was about maybe a three-year period where I was kind of the low man on the totem pole. I was reading all the -the over-the-transom stuff, um, you know, eight, nine, ten things a week, um, and then having to write reports and analyze them. And it was just a crash course in, you know, how do stories work, what makes a story work. That was my graduate school in, in becoming a writer. I came out of that with at least some sense of, yeah, what are the bones of a story? What, what are the ingredients that, that move a piece along? What are the ingredients that help build a, a character? And without that, I'd probably still be floundering around. <laughs> wow, that does give me insight into your book, because your book is cinematic in a way. It's fast-paced. It's almost a thriller, I would, I would say. It doesn't have a whole lot of fat on the bones. 
So I can see that that formation in structure and plot really had an effect. Very much came from that, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so let's talk about your newest novel, Uncle Anton's Atomic Bomb. I understand that there are significant parallels between this book and your own life. I wonder if you consider it a fictional autobiography. That's a good way of putting it. It may be a little too strong, but it's certainly a, a real key aspect of the book. Uh, in fact, Dan Wakefield wrote a story about this in uh, Nuvo after the book came out because he also is often asked, okay, well, what are the autobiographical elements? And and I think, you know, it's it's part of the experience of reading literature like this. Of the, the reader's curious, the reader's excited, the reader wants to feel that there's a Roman Clay aspect to it. Uh, with Uncle Anton, there is to some extent in that I have definitely lived many aspects of of the book, particularly what the three sons went through. And the book is to some degree inspired by the experience of my mother's life. Her first job out of college was going to Moscow in 1951 to work for the State Department and start a school for the children of English-speaking diplomats. And I often heard stories about that and always you know, secretly wondered, you know, was she a spy? And when I would bring that up, it would kind of be laughed off. But I decided to go with the premise, let's say she was. A lot of the ideas for the book flow out of that. I mean, it doesn't take much to recognize other parallels besides that story that you've just mentioned. All one has to do is read the back uh, biography about you and make certain assumptions, your own preppy past, the whole uh, boarding school thing, and then Yale. You know, we see all of these places come up along, of course, with the island in Maine and the home in Indianapolis. So it's more than just your mother's origin story. So how did you decide to write it this way instead of writing, for example, a memoir? That's an interesting question and one that I deserve some thought from me because I've, I actually have been approached by several people in the past uh, suggesting that I write a memoir, particularly about my mother's life. But just by natural inclination, I am, you know, I do fiction, I write fiction. And again, I'm always interested in that overlap between the way the fiction is evoking and echoing real experience and real history. And you know, there are some very specific scenes in the book that describe and re-evoke some, some historical incidents in Indianapolis history, uh, the Robert Kennedy speech, for one, in 1968, the evening when Martin Luther King was assassinated. I think that, uh, to be honest, I don't see a whole lot of difference between fiction and memoir. I think a good piece of fiction is exciting the brain in the same way that uh, a good memoir is. Your relationship to creating characters and your approach to realism in this book, would you say it's different from your approach to the same in your other books? Just having, for example, gotten into Hoosier Life and Casualty, your 2009 book, I see more far-fetched characters and more improbable situations that remind me a little bit of Vonnegut. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you took a different approach here because it was material that was so close to home. 
I think so. I think that's a, a good observation. In a lot of ways, I feel like this is my first book. The, the, the first two were kind of warm-ups for this. <laughs> and uh, I think stylistically that does uh, involve, yeah, getting to a place of a little bit more, shall we say, just, yeah, realistic evocation or building of characters. The earlier books are a little more surreal and uh, collage-based. Vonnegut is uh, certainly a, a major factor in a lot of ways. I, I had the strange fortune of uh, growing up in his house. So his presence has always been there. In some ways, you know, it's both a blessing and a curse. It was a great gift, but there's been a, a certain, you know, heaviness to his presence in my life that I've had to kind of find my way through. I can imagine that would be a pretty looming shadow. Now, Vonnegut, he's a junior. He was the son of Kurt Vonnegut, the architect. And, right. and, and I assume that's and, the architect of your house. And my father's also an architect, yeah. And so you were extremely aware of Kurt Vonnegut, the author, as a child? Absolutely. Uh, and he came back and visited a number of times. I was quite small, but... You know, I knew that this was somebody important who was walking through our house. And uh, one time in particular, rather touching story, my father, yeah, was an architect, and he had uh, done some renovations, and he turned the the living room into a two-story room, and in doing so had eliminated the upstairs master bedroom, which had been the, the bedroom of Kurt's parents. And so in the course of one of these visits, my, my father made a comment of like, you know, I'm sorry we had to take out your parents' bedroom, and Kurt said, um, I heard so much fighting coming from behind those doors, it's just as well that it's gone. Now, a lot of teenagers go through their Vonnegut phase. I remember myself reading Cat's Cradle about five times in a row when I was 16. Did you have a special relationship to Vonnegut? For a long time, I was uh, I didn't know how to talk about it, and I didn't share the information about growing up his house with a lot of people. Um, well, you were already on the East Coast by then, right? Right, right. Okay. But yeah, I've certainly loved his books, and I've I, you know I've actually very consciously sort of slowly read them through my life. I'll occasionally go back to some Slaughterhouse Five in particular, but you know there've been also some other really important influences. And again, I was blessed to kind of grow up in a, a culture and an environment where books and reading and writers were, were a big deal. I used to hear a lot when I was very young about a guy named Thornt who would come to visit my grandparents. And the next time Thornt comes, and it wasn't that good to see Thornt. And it was only when I was much older that I realized they were talking about visits from Thornton Wilder, who'd been a good friend of my grandfather's. It's funny how you make sense of your childhood later on, isn't it? Yeah. And that's kind of what you're doing in, in this book, it seems. I think very much so, yeah. The book came to be in a sort of difficult way. It was it was a book that I knew that I always wanted to write. I thought it was maybe 10 or 15 years out that I wasn't ready to write it yet. And then six years ago, I, I was given a cancer diagnosis, throat cancer, and there's there's nothing like a little brush with mortality to create a sort of creative pucker factor. And I realized it was now or never. I, you know, I, if I was going to do it, I had to do it. And, 
you know, lo and behold, I discovered I was ready to write it, and it was an amazing experience. And it was also a very therapeutic experience in that it was six hours a day that I wasn't having to think about having cancer, that I could just throw myself into it. There was a, a real turning point later on when I sent the book to Dan Wakefield, who's uh, you know, he's a he's a tough sell. I had I had sent my earlier books to him, and he you know very politely responded, "Not my cup of tea, Ian." So this third time around, I thought, okay, you know, what's uh, what's he going to say? Dan, by the way, had also been one of those presences in my yeah. childhood. He had he had uh, dated my aunt in high school, and uh, had always heard him talked about. At uh, Shortridge, it must yeah, have been. Yeah, And Dan, of course, the author of Going All yeah, the Way, yeah. and New and, York uh, in the 50s. Right, New York in the 50s, under the apple tree. I sent him uh, an early version of Uncle Anton, and he got back to me right away. He said, somewhere in here is a great story, but you have to make a lot of cuts. Wow. That's when a, a big change occurred around, instead of sort of thinking the of the book of what it was doing for me in terms of really opening up a lot of memories and allowing myself to really pour a lot out into it. That was a turning point where I really had to start asking, okay, what does the book need from me in the way of an editorial vision, in the way of really bringing out what Dan was sensing was in there? I can see how a brush with mortality would force your hand in terms of wanting to get that story out. But you've got to not leave us hanging about the diagnosis you were given. How are you doing now? Knocking on wood. So far, so good. I'm six years out now. Good. And and, uh, so far, I have the all clear. Congratulations. That's great. Let's talk more about that relationship with Wakefield. So he dated your aunt in high school. Right. Um, Did you know him besides that? I had always heard stories about him, Uh met him a couple times briefly uh, when he was living in Boston, but have only gotten to know him better in the past few years as as a writer and with his help on this book. The other thing that was very meaningful was his response to the the avocation of the 1950s in the book. He said that he really felt that that it, it felt resonant and accurate, and that was very satisfying. He's fond of reading the the opening paragraph to people. He had a couple of readings up in Indianapolis. He did the introduction and and read that aloud. And do you want to read that right now? Would you read maybe a paragraph sure. or two from the from the beginning? Chapter one, an invocation of the nineteen fifties. Not to worry, darling. Time behaves strangely in quantum physics and the human mind. Sit back, sip your drink, and allow words and phrases such as hock-op and fallout, Studebaker and red scare to summon up what images they will. Trust that your evening libation tastes pretty much the same in 1951 as it does today. And if you are a member of Gen Whatever for whom the year 1951 has no reference point, imagine a period in American life when the term unwed mother had a nasty sting. I was curious about that telescopic view from which this story is told. Many expressions throughout the book remind us that you are telling this story from a distance. You'll say things like, or the narrator, I should say, will say things like, many years later it was revealed, or this being the 50s. So those expressions remind us that we're being taken back there. What's the strategy there? The book covers... A long period of time, and this that was one of the major challenges for me and one of the differences between this book and the earlier books, which are much shorter in terms of timeline. 
this book starts in 1951 and goes up into the 90s. And there were a lot of structural challenges to that for me because, again, in doing that, there needs to be the illusion of the passage of time. The reader does need to experience somehow that they've just gone through 40 years. And how do you do that? How do you achieve that? And part of that is, uh, yeah, the, a telescoping effect at times of moving in, moving out, moving in, moving out, to remind the reader about the flow of time. I'm interested in this, um, <laughs> this ethnic subset that you describe in your book, the, the Hoosier preppy, <laughs> otherwise known as Midwestern Northeasterners. And, and I don't think it's, a, it's an, a, a group that ethnographers have really spent a whole lot of time uh, discussing or investigating. Is it a group that exists anymore? It's a great question. Does it exist anymore? <laughs> I, I, I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. It's probably gone through some changes. I'm not a a sociologist or an ethnographer, and I, I can't give you a expert reflections on it. We do hear it referenced in um, Great Gatsby. Fitzgerald talks about uh, the Easterners go to Harvard, the Midwesterners go to Yale, the Southerners go to Princeton. And Michael Martone, by the way, sort of picks up on some of this in his comments about Uncle Anton. And yeah, that evocation of a very Midwestern demographic, a very Midwestern feel to the family, but one that's very much plugged into their interactions in the East, and, and a lot of that based on on the educational patterns, the, the understanding that everyone's going to go to school in the East and then come back, that there's always going to be that thread. The era in which you've set your book is, in fact, much described in the media these days, the mid-century. How are you trying to bring a more nuanced vision of that era? A couple of things come to mind, one being another very specific seed to to the writing of this book having to do with the Cold War. This was an experience I had much later on. Uh, the night that the Berlin Wall fell, I was working in Indianapolis and driving back to Bloomington, and the news came on the radio. And um, <clears throat> I knew it was coming. I read the newspapers. It wasn't a surprise, but there was some 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 very visceral impact about hearing that it had actually happened. And I had to pull the car over, and I just uh, found myself sobbing, uh, crying, and uh, couldn't figure out where is that coming from. Um, and finally sorted it out and realized that it was just the extent to which the news of that event felt like the lifting or the end of the Cold War in some way, and, and suddenly realizing the enormous amount of tension that I and we and my whole generation had lived under for decades that had become invisible. And it was only when it lifted that I could feel the intensity of it and how deep it was in every way and every day, you know. And I, that was a point where I realized, you know, I want to write something about that. I want to write something about that kind of overlay of an invisible but deeply powerful force of uh, a larger international political flavor that's overlaid on a story that is essentially a very domestic daily life story about a family's life. And yet sort of woven into that are these, you know, constant reminders that there's something much bigger and darker that's has insinuated itself. As far as the era of the, yeah, the 60s, 70s, the mid-century with Indianapolis, that was also something that I felt 
I really wanted to explore. That was really a complicated time in the history of the city. You know, my family has lived in Indianapolis from the beginning for a long time. In fact, it was one of my ancestors who picked out the site of Indianapolis in uh, about 1810 or so. So it's kind of in my blood, the the pulse of, of the city. And, and I think growing up, I was aware that the city had reached a, a high point that it was descending from. And I think, you know, the 60s were, uh, this is when the downtown Indianapolis really started to deteriorate. There was very much a sense that a city that had once been much greater and, and thriving and bustling and was going into a period of some really serious decline. And, you know, this was happening through the 60s and 70s. You're listening to Profiles, and I'm Yael Cassander. Our guest today is author Ian Woolen, who's also a psychotherapist. Woolen's most recent novel, Uncle Anton's Atomic Bomb, has significant parallels to his own life. Speaking of your mom and the character, I should say the character of Mary, who is roughly modeled after your mom, you say that you have woven this story out of this long-held speculation that your mother was a spy when she was there working at the American school, or the English-speaking school in Moscow. And so, obviously, a spy keeps secrets. There are a lot of people keeping secrets of one form or another in your book. And then I was thinking about the fact that, you, you know, a therapist keeps a lot of secrets, keeps a lot of confidences. And then the character of Mary Wangard turns into a therapist later in life. Right. So uh, could we explore that connection and uh, the whole idea of secret keeping? Yeah, that's a key piece in the book. And at one point later on, yeah, when, when Mary goes back to graduate school, it even becomes, I think, the topic of her of her thesis. I try to explore that at a number of different levels. And uh, one is, yeah, within the family, the role and function of secrets in, in family development, in family dynamics. I try to broaden it out in terms of the mid-century and the 50s and in the 60s and I also try to evoke part of the experience of, of growing up in that era and looking back and realizing all the larger social and cultural and political secrets. In writing this book, I had to do you know a lot of research, and there's a lot we didn't know, a lot of which started to come out in like the 70s and 80s as far as CIA and, and uh, some of their operational practices. So, yeah, it's the impact of secrets, not just at the personal or family level, but also at the social level. Speaking of the Cold War and the secret-keeping era, we, for so long, were terrified of the USSR. School children had to do duck and cover. Right. Uh, there were fallout shelters everywhere, and the Wangerts even have a bomb shelter in their backyard. Right. The kids play in it, but ultimately there is a, there is a terrorist act in the book. But the enemy turns out not to be the other. Is there a big big moral here there is a moral but i'll i'll keep that as a secret for the reader to discover i think another important sort of influence for me in terms of wanting to write this book and growing up mid-century is yeah i was still a kid in the 60s but i was old enough to know that something really big was happening and that there was it was supposed to be changing everything and that we were supposed to really be figuring things out and that, that the new generation was going to do it differently and that we were going to solve the problems of the world and that, that life was going to be better. Then, lo and behold, 
10, 20, 30, 40 years, 50 years later now, and uh, we've screwed it up just as much as the earlier generation. And that's what I wanted to hint at, that there's some things we're not seeing and that we're missing. And that's where that ending is coming from, because it comes from a place of something that has been unattended to or not noticed enough. All right. Well, so the big question would be, which of the three boys is you? Well, that's a, that is a good question. And, and the answer to that is that the way I got into writing those characters and the, the, uh, what really helped me to, to, to flesh them out and explore them was no one of them, you know, again, really correspond to me per se, but I could have become any one of them. You know, speaking of, you know, my dark preppy past, um, Rob is the the kind of the preppy hippie, you know, who kind of drops out and goes back to the land and ends up living in Maine on the island year round and um, could have been me real easily. Uh, thought about it frequently. And Anthony is uh, more the intellectual political activist, pursues his career in journalism, and um, he's the one who goes to Yale and could have been me. Could have done that. Uh, I spent a lot of time in Washington D.C. in the in the early '80s, uh, like he does, and dealing uh, with policy issues. Dealing with policy issues, and I had a uh, another life in the film industry, working in documentary films, and that work took me there frequently. And could have been me. And then uh, likewise, Duncan, who's the one who comes home. He is in some ways carrying on the family tradition more, comes back to the family business, um, is more the the businessman. And, um, you know, I inherited some of those genes, too, and and very well could have been my life as well. And I again, I just kind of let my imagination go with these these three possible routes that my life could have taken. I'm quite happy that they didn't and that I'm here now in Bloomington uh, speaking with you. It reminds me of uh, what they say about dream interpretation and how every character in a dream is one aspect of you. Exactly, exactly. That's a good way of, huh. of looking at it, yeah. Huh. yeah. Just in terms of the whole uh, Hoosier canon, right? Do you see that there is a, a, a continuum that, that goes from Booth Tarkington and James Whitcomb Riley to Kurt Vonnegut and Dan Wakefield and you? There is a really curious phenomenon of of yeah the Hoosier uh, the Hoosier author which goes back yeah also to you know Meredith Nicholson and you know a lot of people kind of speculated on why that is there's some you know off quoted piece of data that uh, of all the states uh, with the largest number of best selling authors through history Indiana I think. Is number two. I think maybe New York State is the is number one. And um, uh, the state of Indiana over time has the is a, you know a, a large number of authors who've sold a lot of books and and uh, and built audiences. And you know it's re- it's really a mystery about that. One theory I've heard on it is that um, through the mid and late nineteenth century and early twentieth century, there was a large number of literary salons that grew up across the state. Uh, This was happening in the rest of the country, too. It's sort of the equivalent of the book club phenomenon today. 
but that in the rest of the country at the turn of the 20th century, a lot of these uh, literary groups turned into service clubs, but that that did not happen in Indiana, that they stayed strictly as, as literary groups. Was this a woman's phenomenon? Uh, to some degree, yes, yeah, but also include included you know men's literary groups, and that that change into to service groups didn't happen here, and, and it maintained a kind of bedrock sort of reading public that out of which you know these authors came. Well, thank you. Thank you. Very happy to come in and talk about books and writing, and great to know that people want to talk about books and writing and listen. And, Enjoy, yeah. That was author Ian Woolen speaking with WFIU's Yael Cassander. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. James Gray is the producer... The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.